welcome to this very special State of Reinsurance episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Stephen's Rickard. This Monte Carlo rendezvous was very different from last year's. Last year, it was all about reinsurers and brokers getting the clearest message possible across to buyers that the market was going to reset in a major way at the 1st of January 2023. That made it pretty straightforward to report upon. For me or anyone listening to last year's inaugural reinsurance documentary episode, the message was obvious. And then, if the intentions of mortals weren't clear enough, the insurance gods chipped in with major Florida landfalling Hurricane Ian only days later. The message may or may not have got through, but a huge lack of certainty for buyers was the result. Everyone could see that prices and attachment points had to rise, and terms and conditions had to improve but it was hard to find out specifically what that meant in firm terms from the market until very late in the day. This was traumatic and painful for many, and put relationships under an enormous amount of strain. I'm recapping all of this because the trauma of the recent past meant that a reasonable part of this year's rendezvous necessarily dealt with looking back and trying to heal some of that scar tissue, repair fractured alliances, and rationalise some of the changes that were made after everyone had last met in 2022. Reinsurance is a people and trust business, and human emotions ran high at 1123. So there was much more of the past tense than you would usually expect from a forward-looking gathering such as this. Things are much calmer now, and the word you'll most hear on this podcast is orderly. In the results from the first two quarters of 2023, reinsurers have even got some early proof points that their new attachment points are putting them well in excess of the sort of attritional medium-sized cat losses that they were regularly picking up in the past. Indeed, the balance has clearly shifted, with many seedants seeing red numbers on their earnings where lower-layer reinsurance recoveries might once have been found. Once that pain and emotion of 1123 was got out of the way, this was a rendezvous where we could look forwards and try to answer some of the big questions looming in 2024. Were the major changes of the once-and-done variety, or was more to come? Or conversely, would the favourable reinsurance market conditions replenish appetites and attract new capital that would unleash renewed competitive forces in a way that has happened so many times in the past? Will this allow seedants to begin the slow process of chipping away at what reinsurers had gained at the last renewal? Would anyone be looking at selling a product to ease the increased burden on seedants' earnings? Another crucial question was, after a year marked by backyard deterioration, current inflation and painful US court awards, whether casualty reinsurance was likely to be subjected to the kind of reset that had happened to property markets a year earlier. What follows will cover all of this and a lot more besides. I'm not going to give it away, but this year's year-end renewals contain an awful lot more subtlety and nuance than any of the renewal seasons I've covered in the past 18 years. So listen on. I spoke to over 20 senior executives from a broad spectrum of the buying, selling and broking worlds in three and a half intense days at the rendezvous. Yes, with hindsight, that is slightly overdoing it. But if you've ever been to the whirlwind of meetings that is Monte Carlo, doing slightly too much talking is what this event is all about. And this podcast is bound to reflect that. So my promise to you is that if you weren't lucky enough to be down at the Côte d'Azur in mid-September, Listening to this podcast will be the absolute next best thing to having been there in person, in the room with me, as I canvass the views of a very large number of key industry figures. Give me the next hour, and I'll give you the state of reinsurance. Enjoy the podcast. First, we need to set the scene. So let's get started with someone with a broad view of the marketplace, who will be very familiar to regular listeners, James Vickers, chairman of Gallagher International. I asked James where we were. And this was his very eloquent response. Well, I think we're in a, in a much more comfortable place 
than we have been certainly for the last year or two. There's a consistency of messaging coming out. I think reinsurers achieved a great deal at the 1-1-2023 renewal, particularly around moving up attachment points. Yes, the process of how that was achieved was rough. Clients didn't enjoy it. It was very difficult. But reinsurers made some really significant steps forward and are therefore, I think, in a more comfortable place in terms of their portfolios. And at the same time, of course, their results have been good. Now, six months isn't a whole year. We've still got the rest of the year to go. But for the first time in a long time, reinsurers have produced reported ROEs nearer 20%, which is very, very encouraging for them. So I think we're looking at a much more orderly market. There's a consistency of messaging. There are one or two areas that people are concerned, but there seems to be universal agreement about those areas. And surprise, surprise, it's U.S. casualty. (laughs) It's a a universal area of concern. But for property and for most specialty lines, there is a recognition by reinsurers that market conditions are very good and they'd like to lean into it. They don't want to give up what they've achieved. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be as somebody put it to me the other day. Is there, the, is there a consensus that there's no friction around trying to get those attachment points back down again? Well, I think there's a recognition that reinsurers are not going to reduce those attachment points. Having said that, there is a huge demand from clients for some sort of lower level earnings volatility cover. The themes are all there, but let's go into a lot more detail. Time to hear from some reinsurers. Here's a good opener from Louise Rose, CEO, Transree London, and President, Transree Europe. So it's interesting. I mean, I was talking to somebody about this um, just earlier today, actually, and they made the comment that they did feel that it was a knee-jerk reaction by reinsurers. I would counter that a little bit by saying that I think it should have been evident that reinsurers could not continue in any way, shape or form the way they were going, particularly on CAT. But CAT's the headline that everybody talks about. But there was challenges and adverse development, particularly on casualty, particularly in the US. So there was an awful lot of headwind. CAT always gets the headlines for the obvious reasons. So do I think there is room for continued improvement? Yes. Do I think we're going to see a repeat of the scale of change of 1123? No, I don't. But I think it would be ill-advised for anyone to think that we peaked and that we're going to start going backwards. I don't see that in any line, quite frankly, or any territory. And now let's hear from John Paul Conoscente, CEO of SCORE Global PNC. I think um, discussions we've had at uh, Monte Carlo show the expectations are aligned or more or less aligned between insurance reinsurers. So I, I think everybody's looking for uh, orderly renewal, more uh, in line with the timing of, of previous renewals before last year, having some heads up on capacity available, on price expectations, in terms so of conditions. So you have earlier discussions. Not you know, necessarily specifics of the program, but more general expectations. I think this has been very useful. So, expectations are aligned or more or less aligned. I'd make that our first nuance. And I promise you that won't be the last time we hear the word orderly. Well, uh, at least I would describe it as orderly right now. So, when we entered into the last part of the renewal last year, it was pretty uncertain everything because we were really in a moment of, uh, of change. Right now, I think we set the standards last year where we thought most of us should be going. And right now, I think it should be more relaxed to orderly. Of course, I don't 
expect the market to bring back uh, the standards to levels that they were before. So the expectation uh, of all of us as underwriters is that we should continue to get risk-adjusted uh, returns. But uh, at least uh, we know where we are and what we can expect. Apologist Eduardo Perathelema, CEO of Matfree Re there, with two more orderlies. But this is probably the best way of my getting over to you just how common an opener this was in all my encounters. It's just that after the chaotic last 1-1 renewal, everyone would be reminded how valuable orderliness is and how much you miss it when it's not there. Allow Hannah Watkins, Managing Director of BMS Re, to bring the frustrations of brokers and buyers a little more to life. It was very easy last year, wasn't it? To come away with a clear... It was I mean, easy to understand what the message was. It, it was, but no one actually knew what that meant for them. And it took some time. It took a long time, right, in the, in the sense of... Because it wasn't a clear message to say, this is the new price, this is my capacity at that price. No, it was just like, times are changing and it's going to be a big change, but I can't tell you what that means for you. And that uncertainty was unnerving. And there were points where there were certain carriers and clients that weren't getting lead quotes until in the middle of December. And you can't manage that. As a client, how do you manage that process? And it does feel very different this year. It feels like the personality is back. It feels calmer and it's fine tuning. I think those are the words that I would use where they want to fine tune their programs, both clients and seedants. So the idea is that not knowing where you are is the worst thing. But now we all do. This next season is all about fine tuning. But first of all, does everyone agree that the radical changes of the last season were enough and we really are in the realms of fine-tuning and not continued re-underwriting? And if people are in agreement, what form is that fine-tuning going to take? Plenty of reinsurers are still talking about unfinished business. Have we done the work we need to do, let's say on property? Is it really more a question of we've got up to the summit and we now need to find ways of staying up here? Or do you still think we're only halfway up the summit and we need to keep going? Yeah, look, I always think there's work to be done. If you look at the first half of this year and there's clearly been some activity it's not like the industry hasn't seen loss events but what you can but at least in contrast to say of the terms and conditions we had five years ago that would have been 100%. a very painful first half for all of you this year you've literally been rising above that that has been under exactly so if, if you look at the loss pattern in the first six months you can clearly see what the reinsurance market's done it's just moved north and got away from those losses and there is evidence that the market we're in today is a lot better more sustainable but there's still a lot of work to be done and we're only at half time aren't we so so do you think you'd be happier going further north from here inflation hasn't gone away has it so i think we all have to make sure that we can't just sit back and think everything's fixed there's gonna be no problems going forward and look for me we have to prove to the investor base that underwriting companies are a sustainable investment so i don't want to get ahead of the game let's see what happens this year But we have to win that trust back of investors that this is a sustainable asset class for the future. That's Alex Maloney, CEO of Lancashire, making a case for much of the fine-tuning to still be in an upwards direction, despite relative happiness about where insurers have managed to find themselves, all tempered with a familiar wisdom that we're still in hurricane season and 2023 is far from over. Charles Goldie, Chief Underwriting Officer of MS3, agrees, but puts it slightly differently. For Charlie... It's more about insurers and reinsurers alike, moving collectively to get more money into the global insurance pot overall. Everything is really good at the moment. Uh, No underwriter ever says it's good. You always worry about risk. I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, I should take more risk today, or I should reduce the price for risk. 
So I think everything's trending in the right direction. I think the balance is coming back to the industry. But I worry all the time. My job is to worry about things that can happen or might happen, not to predict what will happen. I think we need to go a little bit further north. Risk-adjusted flat, I think, is probably not where we need to be. There's events that you look at and say there's still a lot of risk in the system that isn't modeled, isn't seen, that can get there. I think we also have to go north in the underlying market, right? A lot of the losses that have happened this year have missed the reinsurance industry, but they've done a lot of damage to the buyers of reinsurance that used to have coverage for these. And there, ultimately, that's got to get passed through to the ultimate consumer. And we're still at a point where, at the very front end, we have to get more money into the system. As a senior representative of a market that is both buyer and seller of reinsurance, it's perhaps no surprise that Patrick Tiernan, Chief of Markets at Lloyd's, also seems to be in the insurers and reinsurers are in this together camp. Last year, it was difficult. There was some pretty difficult conversations and there was fraying around the edges, but we've got ourselves back together. I think a lot of the heavy lifting has been done for the ills of the past. I think there is quite a lot more work to do, but I think there's a sense that we go and we do this work in partnership rather than go to the cliff edge again this year. So some unfinished business, but once again, he gives a sense of an orderliness that was absent last year. Of all of last year's market bulls, perhaps the strongest was Richard Brindle, Group CEO of then Fidelis and now Fidelis MGU. Let's see how he sums up the big picture in the market. More and more companies, I would say, are crossing the fence and saying, we need to talk about this. We need to de-risk. We need to write less CAD. So I think macro picture, Mark, increased demand from clients. That's clear. The supply, a few people may quote unquote lean in, but I think more will lean out. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to be huge rises at 1-1, but I think the momentum will continue. So Mr. Brindle is still demonstratively bullish on continued momentum, but nothing like as dramatic. Let's hear Jim Williamson, Group COO and Head of Reinsurance at Everest's opening statement, followed by Kathleen Reardon, CEO of Hiscox Re and ILS. What I would say is we expect, first of all, the renewal to be orderly. The market now understands what economics are required to secure capacity. Terms and conditions have been pretty well established, and I think uh, clients are focused on ensuring that they can maximize the capacity they have with their core trading partners. Everest's view is that prices need to continue to rise, certainly not to the extent we would have seen at 1-1-2023. But if you look out into the world, the level of CAT events that are happening really in every geography and across multiple perils, it's quakes, it's floods, it's fires and hurricanes. Uh, That's a very dangerous world. So our perspective is that merits ongoing rate increases. Clearly, we're in uh, in a new environment in terms of the level of loss activity that we expect. And that's really what's going to drive the conversation. Looking back at last year, there was the anticipated level of change was quite significant. And as I sit here this year, we're in a much better place. We're in a more healthy place. And yes, we have strong market conditions. Yes, we have hard market conditions in several of our peak perils. And it's also the first time in my career that I've seen all classes of business going up simultaneously. So in good shape. We're in a healthy, healthy shape. But there's reasons for this, right? All the conditions that got us to this place to begin with are still existent. There's, they still present challenges, whether it's the climate change, the inflationary environment, political instability. I mean, look at the first half of the year, right? The losses have certainly not abated. So the demand for reinsurance is not going away. So to me, that supports a sustainable hard market well into 2024. Another use of the word orderly from Jim. 
I'll start editing these out now because I think you've got the picture. But the orderliness is once again accompanied by a steely promise from him and Kathleen that whilst anticipated levels of change may have tempered somewhat, rate momentum will continue because we're now in an environment where there's really no room for anyone to debate whether or not we're in a new normal for heightened expected loss activity. But while everyone can agree on orderliness, does that actually translate to stability? Here's a timely thought from Paul Brand, CEO of Convex, that things are perhaps more fragile under the surface than we might assume. This episode is supported by Stevens Rickard. Stevens Rickard Limited is an executive search firm with offices in London, Chicago and Zurich, and a specific focus on the global insurance and reinsurance markets. Whilst this is far from unique, what sets it apart is its dedication to searching beyond the obvious, its bespoke DNI reports produced for each project, its near obsession with doing the right thing by both clients and candidates, its 100% track record in completion of assignments, and the pride the firm takes in improving the businesses of its clients and the careers of its candidates. It's not all about us. It's about you. Visit stevensrickard.com to find out more. I think there's more to go, would be my thoughts. And I think that people are, are ignoring exactly how brittle this market is. Because yeah, if you just put yourself into a situation where there has been another major loss, what happens? People erode capital, people don't make returns for shareholders during 2023, then in some ways it's going to be actually even worse because people are starting to count the money, even though the money's not actually yet in the bank. And if you found a situation which could quite easily happen where that proves to be not the case, then I don't think everybody's going to turn around and go, well, oh, don't worry about that. It's just, yeah, it's just another one of those unfortunate years. Um, there's more where that came from. There's much more where that came from. So we can just go ahead as we were and everything will be fine. So I think there's more structural problems for the reinsurance industry to address. Are we only one more big loss from a return to disorder? Quite possibly. A big theme emerging is that while investors have noticed that reinsurance has indeed reset, it still doesn't present an investment prospect that is getting them too excited. Or in other words, investor scars are a long way from healing, and we're still very much in the doghouse. Here's Waleed Jabshe, CEO of IGI, with a neat summary. We've only had six months of healthy results, and uh, let's see what happens between now and the end of the year. And even if the first six months is the reflection of performance for the rest of the year, we still have five years of poor results to make up for. So our outlook is continued hardening. So it looks like there's no sign of relief for seedants. It does look like they're going to have to get used to retaining more and paying more for what they do transfer. Let's put these new retention levels in context. Where are they today versus where they've been historically? Time to ask one of the industry's best-known analysts, David Flandreau, Head of Industry Analysis and Strategic Advisory at Howden Tiger. Basically, what's happened here is 2023 retention levels indicate that sedents would have absorbed 64% of the same NatCat losses on an historical basis compared to 54% previously. That's important so to understand. 10 important points of, of a big number as well. Sedents are retaining more. And if we rerun the last 22 years, they would have retained 10 percentage points more of all those losses to Huku, Katrina, 9-11 at current retention levels. Now, this is a great big average over a long period of time, and there's tons of variation in there. But that's right. Currently, sedents are retaining much more than they have in a very long time. Wow. I don't have my calculator on me. But on an as-if basis, this is saving reinsurers tens of billions of theoretical dollars a year. So surely reinsurers have to be happy with where they've managed to get. 
Well, following my canvassing of the market, I'd say the focus was much more on continued rate momentum and, in general, a willingness to leave attachment points alone, as long as they're not eroded. Here's a pretty happy-sounding John Welsh, Chief Underwriting Officer at Aspen Re. So are you happy with the way things are structured generally? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as from a reinsurer perspective, we are certainly want to be here for the peak losses and we want to be here for the very, very severe losses, but not necessarily here for every quarterly cat that happens. And so I think that the way it's been reset, you can certainly see in the results of the primary insurers, a lot more CAT has been pushed back to them. They'll be focused on managing that CAT. They'll be focused on getting the right rates for that CAT. And I think that's where that should sit. The retention movement, I think, was frankly just as important or more important than the price. And I think that is something that will stay where it is for, for quite a while. Interesting that for John, the reset attachment point is even more important than rate. But given what David Flandre said earlier, that makes an enormous amount of sense. 10 whole percentage points off every major reinsurance loss of the last 20 years certainly adds up. Jim Williamson agrees. Do you think we're okay on attachment points? I do. I think a lot of heavy lifting was done last year to correct programs. And it's attachment points, it's terms and conditions, and it's obviously certainly pricing. And so we don't need to continuously be adjusting these things. I think we got most of our clients into a really good position and there's always going to be some work around the edges where you still have adjustments to be made. But fundamentally, I think attachment points are where they need to be. And I actually think year-to-date experience is a proof point of that. It's not so much that reinsurers are looking to avoid loss, but we are looking to avoid attritional losses. That's really not our business. That should be the business of the primary carriers to ensure that they're charging enough to absorb those attritional losses. And then our capacity is really for those major cat events. By the way, those events aren't always necessarily huge. You can have an event like the earthquake in Turkey or even the earthquake in Morocco where reinsurance capital will play an important role in terms of reconstructing those countries. And we think that's appropriate. What is not necessarily, in our view, an appropriate role for reinsurers is to handle your average severe convective storm in the United States. But as reinsurers move up into the nice clean air away from the dirt and grime of attrition, they're leaving the decedents holding the losses that they would have been paying, maybe even as recently as last year. Here's Lara Maori, Global Head of Distribution at Guy Carpenter, making this point on behalf of our clients. When we look at the degree of change that happened in the property catastrophe portfolio at January 1, it was absolutely substantial. Some people have said it was generational. Some people have referred to it as 10 years of market adjustment happening all at the same time. The degree of shift that the market experienced overall absolutely is adequate. You can see it as results come through. And we've had significant severe convective storm losses. When we look at tracking large losses within the Guy Carpenter Index, 80% of half one losses have been US-based and 100% of those have been severe and convective storm or winter storm. So the way losses happen really highlighted that shift in attachment points and how material it is. When you look at Q2 earnings results, you see that coming through very clearly. The insurers who are exposed to those losses are reporting 110 combined ratios or above. The reinsurer partners are reporting 80s and 90s combined ratios. But reinsurer's counter-argument to this was probably made most succinctly in Charlie Goldie's point earlier. 
that insurers are hurting just shows that there needs to be more premium in the system. The days of a cheap reinsurance subsidy are over. Here's the final word on this from Scott Egan, CEO of Serious Point. I would say there's been a pretty consistent theme, and that would be, number one, that the price correction last year was exactly that. It was a price correction. And so the sort of questions of are rates going to come down, I've been really clear, no. Okay, And they shouldn't come down. Reinsurers are really just capturing their cost of capital. But I've said also, I do think following, and I'll use your expression, the pace heave, I do think there's a bit of fine-tuning. And I think probably on structures, on pricing, etc., there's a bit of fine-tuning in working alongside our customers. But it hasn't been a quiet cat year either. And so I think the conversations, particularly with the primaries as well, is going to be, what is it you're trying to protect? So I think what we've seen this year is lots of cat events, but smaller ones. So I think there'll be much more conversations around what I would call frequency covers and how they might work in the market. But I would say prices are here to stay, which is, I think, right and appropriate. We might even see some increases in the right areas where they're needed. But I think lots of fine-tuning and lots of structural conversations. So to summarise our opening skirmishes, reinsurers are feeling better in general, although with the usual caveat that the hurricane season could swiftly ruin things. Reinsurers are in no way feeling flush or overconfident or under threat from an influx of new capital. And so it seems the onus is still on the insurance world to deal with the new normal, mitigate its own portfolios, and try to pass as much of the higher cost onto the original buyers of insurance. Brokers, on the whole, are not behaving in any way aggressively, and are grateful for the new relative stability and predictability that the market has found for itself. But when you heap pressure on insurers, you're creating demand. As James Baker said at the beginning, Reinsurers moving up and away has left a huge demand for covers to protect Seedent's earnings volatility, particularly after a high-frequency, low-severity first half of the year. Scott Egan also hinted at it just now. So, with so much client demand, might aggregate covers make a comeback? These covers were the poster child of the soft market. But could they now be written on reset terms at prices that make economic sense to both buyer and seller? According to John Paul Conoscente, it might be tricky to get the balance right. If they're looking for attachment points to go down again what's the message well i think i think some of them are looking for that and the answer is no we're very clear that we don't want to reduce the attachment points on on cat programs our view is that they should continue to increase with the increase of the portfolio they're looking for protection of earnings because a lot of the cat activity has been transferred to insurance companies i think risk transfer solutions are going to be difficult pure risk transfer solutions We think structured solutions that have some risk transfer but a lot of funding associated with it is probably a better solution to get to a sustainable portfolio over time. As an aside, I thought it was a good idea to start with a reinsurer saying very clearly that attachment points really aren't going anywhere. So this problem is not going to magically disappear. And it's interesting to hear structured solutions getting a mention. Let's talk to someone else. For Alex Maloney, the ag door's definitely shut for the time being. When you look at loss activity, you can see that clearly there will be demand for aggregate covers, but obviously you've been in excess of much better aggregates. Do you think there'll be appetite to sort of reinstate that cover, but on completely new terms? Look, I'm, I'm sure our broker friends would like to reinstate the aggregate covers tomorrow, but I just don't see that happening anytime soon. But I'm sure history will, will repeat itself if the industry has some good years and these kind of covers generally materialise in a soft market, don't they? So, look, I don't think that happens anytime soon. You can clearly see from the primary carriers in the US, not having those aggregate covers has been quite painful. So their loss ratios are getting a lot worse. 
the reinsurers are getting a lot better. So I'm sure a lot of those clients would love to reinstate those products, but well, once they've re- they're just not there. They've taken that pain. They then have to do the insurance work, reset the exactly. insurance product. And once they've reset that insurance product, would you then be happier to come back in? Look, I think at the right level, they may make sense, but I, I still think we're a few years away from wholesale. You're saying it's a soft market product, it's a kind of never I think product. so, yeah. I think so. Banks just sees no need to play ball, particularly when the remedial work in insurance portfolios is still to be done. And of course, it's worth remembering that remediation work takes much longer for insurers than it does for reinsurers. Others are more open, but doubt that the terms can never be set right. Here's a fun exchange with Charlie Goldie that I think really gets to the heart of the problem. Surely, if you could triple the aggregate kick-in point, then wouldn't you be happy to write it again? Because clearly, there's a need for that product. No, it's one of the great questions, Margaret, and, and to ask a, sort of a, a recovering actuary. Right? Because, <laughs> you know, it's all yeah. statistics and probability, isn't sure. it? Sure. And it's one of those, it's theory versus practice. In theory, it's what everyone should buy all the time. In practice, realistically, I'm taking all of your risk. And if I'm taking all of your risk, shouldn't I take all of your profit? But when the product rolls out, it never quite works that way. And so on a theoretical basis, I completely agree with you. It's a product everyone should offer, everyone should be interested in. For some reason that is beyond my job grade, I don't understand why we always manage to mess it up. Good to hear someone say that it's not, there's nothing wrong with the product inherently. Mm-hmm. And it's a perfectly useful product and a viable product because everyone wants sideways protection as well because you right. know it, weird things happen to numbers don't they you know suddenly you get eight small losses and that's very painful right it's theoretically perfect sense for whatever reason in practice we yutz it up every time you'll say show me a deal and if it actually makes sense why wouldn't i write it and if there's a fair and equitable distribution of the expected profits that we can have it sure we don't have a rule that says no aggregates you should probably have a rule that says no aggregates in soft markets uh, <laughs> But if someone wants to show something to us, we're going to look and we're going to understand it. I think it's a challenge for someone to think they're going to clear the hurdle where MS Reinsurance were one part of a syndicated market. So even if you could convince me, can you convince the three, four, eight others that you need to make it happen? And sometimes what makes hard markets is it can be a little bit like herding cats. I love that. Ag covers are the collision of theory versus practice. Plus, also, lots of evidence there of historical stigma against the product, born from bitter experience. Patrick Tiernan isn't seeing it either. Do you think there's capacity available for aggregate covers at the right attachment? Or should there be? Because obviously, we're talking about relevance. We're saying that's a product that people would still buy. They'd be happy to pay more for it, and it would have to be attaching in a far more realistic and far more remote area. So honest answer is I'm not seeing it at the moment. I mean, I, I think that uh, it may be a bit early to see a, a return of those ag covers. If you look at the capital that's flowed into property cap over the last 12, 18 months, you know, a lot of it is in the uh, is in the cap bond area. A lot of it is in ILS. So we're going to maintain that basis risk in coverage, and we're going to. I think you're going to have to see insurers responding to having to deal with sideways risk themselves. So if we look at what's happening in the property DNF market in the US, I mean, that is still roaring in terms of the rate it's trying to bring in because folks have got to take an awful lot more responsibility on their own net shoulders. I think there's a bit of ways to go there. That seems pretty clear. We'll have a closer look at FAC a little later. So setting up a deal like this is going to be the toughest broke out there. One for real cat herders. But it's not never say never, if they can be set up right. 
Here's Kathleen Reardon. Shouldn't be anything intrinsically wrong with an aggregate product as long as it's attaching at the right point and price right. Correct. And what we saw at 1-1 was a lot of restructuring. The structures were simplified for the most part. Aggregates did diminish significantly, but a product structured in the right way where it's very clear, transparent, both parties are able to evaluate the risk appropriately, there's usually a price for that, right? We can ascertain the risk and provide capacity at a certain price. So there will be solutions for below the attachment points. There will be markets, maybe on a structure basis, maybe on a multi-year basis. There are markets interested in providing that product. Kathleen Reardon is much more straightforward. If risk can be measured, it can be priced, and a product can be transacted. John Welch is also cautiously positive. Yeah, it's unclear to me whether there's capacity. I think you're right. I think where that attaches is going to be very important. And then what's the price for that? Certainly, we would look at that. We've pushed out a lot of the aggregate cover we've sold over the years. But it is something we'd keep an open mind to and and take a look at. Because in the end, if you're in excess of a really sensible aggregate, then you think, well, that's a good product in the end. It's a sensible product. We can see where it might come in, particularly in the world we're living in today. Right. Right. And obviously the seedant's going to value that and pay for it. Yeah, absolutely right. And there are some out there that are exactly structured that way and they get support. But what if this higher frequency cat world is one that has got reinsurers feeling uncertain? How do we know that the new normal of $130 billion in annual aggregate cat activity is not simply on its way to becoming $200 billion a year before long? Jean-Paul Colincente explains that increased uncertainty means increased price loading which may just make the product uneconomical. I think it really depends at what level it attaches. I mean, the issue is with the increase of small to medium-sized cat losses, pricing that business is very difficult and has a huge amount of uncertainty. And so uncertainty requires additional margin. You can price such structures, but it may be at a price that the insurance companies don't want to buy at. It looks like this one will run and run, at least until the market can get comfortable again. But before we move on, let's hear from a buyer. Here's James Slaughter, Chief Underwriting Officer at Apollo Syndicate at Lloyd's. Those type of structures probably haven't really ever been back. They're much more structured and therefore they are, again, comes back to being very transparent about what's in, what's not, how you measure and trigger those components. I think for a company like Apollo, we want to keep our transactions reasonably simple. I'd like to be able to go to the board and say, If there's a loss, this is the route to recovery. But I think when you are our size, I think you can recreate the advantages without necessarily overcomplicating it. I think when you're super large and you're buying lots of millions of dollars of coverage, a more complicated and sophisticated structure is worthwhile. But they come with the price and the capacity strain that those sorts of transactions come with. When I told you this was a nuanced market, I really meant it. James Slaughter showing why his thoughts are much sought after in this or any market. But let's move on. Something fairly obvious as attachment points rise and aggregate covers come under pressure or disappear altogether is that sedents are retaining more vertically and horizontally. Their overall box of risk is getting bigger on both sides. One of the ways of making the box a little lighter and more manageable is to excise large chunks of risk through facultative reinsurance. Patrick Tiernan has already mentioned it, but presumably now is a boom time for FAC. Now's a great time to chat to Mike Patworth, Managing Director, Miller International. Mike is responsible for reinsurance and is the chairman of Miller's FAC business. 
given that net retentions are all up, there's a lot more demand presumably for FANG. Yes, and, and net retentions are up because of what happened. But paradoxically, Ian was a cat event, but that hasn't led to more cat being purchased. What it has gone is more fact being purchased within retention because it's a very useful tool to deal with volatility. And this is where fact sometimes merges with treaty and you get some portfolio solutions along certain risk classes or certain geographical classes that we can package and identify individual risks which makes it fact and then we package it together and sell as a facility last described as sort of treaty fact was that the right way of describing it yes i think you can describe it or yeah facility or, or, or facility but essentially it's packaging out portfolio and optimizing a portfolio by identifying the hazards in it taking those out that results in a, in a better balance for the sedent and then you have a carrier that is able to price those risks individually. And I think one of the things that has changed and was changing already, but Ian accelerates for it, is the use of data and therefore being able to analyze risk with good use of data and then being able to present that both to the buyer and the seller and using that data means that my old ability of just being a grubby fact broker is gone and now we need to hire mathematicians and data analysts that can so it's a lot more technical to, yeah it's a, a lot more technical way above my intellect but they're getting a much, but then it's a much fairer risk exchange then so it's, it's much more accurate they're excising the exact amount of risk they want to excise out of that portfolio at the same time they're paying the right price for yeah, it yeah and, well. and it's it's priced it's adequately priced and you have a seller that knows what they're selling and a buyer that knows what's coming into their portfolio and they can and really no and of course they can still drill down to those individual risks and sort of you know practically go down down yes. to inspection report yeah, level yeah. and and really yeah, yeah. look at it uh, so things like a very hazardous petrochemical plant somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico will be looked at and then we analyze it and then we can go down to detail. We have one client where we were able to analyze flood defense measures, hurricane defense measures down to single risk level. And of course, that granularity gives the capacity providers a lot more comfort and the buyer knows as well. And it hasn't necessarily driven the price up. You just have a much more accurate price. And I think buyers are able to measure the value that they're paying because they can see it direct benefit to their portfolio. And also reinsurance capacity is presumably very much available and very liquid. Yeah, it's available if you have the information and the data and you can go to the carriers and articulate it. Yes, if you try and wing it, the capacity is is just not there. FAC is once again the star of the show. Not since the post-KRW markets of 2007 and 2008 has it held so much prominence. But it seems the days of the old transactional fact broker are numbered, with data taking over from shoe leather and negotiating acumen. This is a theme that we'll pick up a little later on, but now it's time to test the water with buyers in general. James Slaughter is a true original thinker, and so we're used to getting a unique perspective from him. But after long days of consensus-building talk, his answers are a little surprising. I wear two hats, as ever, but my primary hat here will be buyer. And I think I worry in two dimensions. On the property side, I less worry about price. I'm much more worried about coverage because our clients demand that coverage from us and we're a US property writer in primary US property, cat exposed, Lloyd's, typical business. It's a great business to be in, but it's a great business to be in if you can manage your risks in an appropriate way. And increasingly, that's harder to do. Last year was a pretty tricky renewal. I don't think it's got any easier. You feel that the reinsurance market is not not helping you? 
or that they're not good enough at differentiating the clients who, who are buying? I think results over the last few years mean people have to go in and try and examine what's causing the outcomes. And when they do that, I think there are a number of areas where perhaps we're less certain about causation. People use the expression secondary perils. They're clearly primary perils to most people these days. The types of perils that were poorly or less adequately modeled for a very long time are increasingly the only thing that our clients are worrying about. When you look at Hurricane Ian, for example, certainly a lot of our clients, their ability to withstand strong winds is very clear. The building codes prove to be pretty resilient. So we're dealing in all sorts of other windblown flood, rain-driven flood, slightly more complex matters. And I think also it's just unavoidable to note how quickly these things are spinning up and how much power they're bringing and how much rain they then drop down in their path. And I think all of those things contribute to nervousness around whether people are capturing that accurately and able to price for it. So I just feel that this renewal season could be a tricky one. In that you are expecting renters who are already moved up and out of the way of a lot of attritional stuff who'd reset their attachment points that they might want to move even further away? I don't think they were doing a one-stop move and stop. I think it was a two-step, three-step type move to my way of thinking. Certainly, I've been on the other side of this and and been a seller for many years. I just don't see it as a one-year go and everyone's happy. And whilst I'm perfectly comfortable that people will get programs placed, I think it's a question of how we respond as insurers to our clients. So it's all about structuring. If that pain, should we describe it as pain, more of that is being passed to you and you're having to retain more of that, then obviously it's going to focus your mind on restructuring your own book. Yeah, there's a lot of great attractive business in the London market on the property side. And I think that's probably one of the key headlines of Lloyd's success at the moment. And we are very much a beneficiary of a very active and positive market. And we are very comfortable to grow our business. But in responding to our clients, they need that coverage. That isn't something that they want to bear. So you start to get that little bit of a squeeze. And it's that squeeze that I'm more worried about than, say, pricing or attachment point. The core fear is still there. That reinsurance for the core covers his clients want and are happy to pay for might get rationed in a way that constrains his business. This doesn't sound all that orderly. Here's James Vickers with an interesting point. Buyers might have stayed away in softer markets, but after last year's shock, they're here in far greater numbers. And I think the other thing that's interesting, this particular Monte Carlo, we've seen more senior management from big primary insurance company buyers coming because there was no doubt that what happened last year, budgets had been set back in September, October. What companies ended up buying was not necessarily what they wanted. So I think senior management are here to test the mood of the market. And what we're hoping is that when they go back next couple of weeks, they will be setting reinsurance budgets for 2024 that will allow them to grow their reinsurance covers a little bit. I suppose we're in a market where many insurers want to grow, reinsurers want to grow. Will there be capital to allow all of that to happen? Yes, I think there will. I think there is enough capital. Sorry I had to cut James Vickers off a bit abruptly there. But ultimately, James the broker is here to assure James the buyer that he probably will be able to get what he needs in this market. And it's encouraging that someone like John Kavanagh, who, as a former very senior reinsurance broker, are now here in his capacity as chairman at Lloyd's Player Beat Capital Partners, 
seems far less worried than others coming to this renewal. We saw massive improvements in the property market coming. You know, the direct and fact market is probably one of the best markets we've ever seen. So having the ability to put out cat aggregate was fundamental to us to take advantage of that market. So yes, it was more expensive to get, but we got where we needed to get. We managed to find some really, really good quota share reinsurance that we didn't expect to find. You know, our excess of loss quotes were tough, but manageable. Yeah, we paid up because we'd had losses here and there. And um, it gave us the ability to sell insurance at a sensible price. And we knew the opportunities would be there. So, you know, you can complain about the sort of price dynamics as the much cost as you living like. Crisis. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, ultimately, we got what we needed to get and we managed to sell that on in increasing prices on our insurance books. So, yeah, we ended up in a very good place. A lot of other students would have had a different view. They would have felt a bit shocked and a bit hurt and a bit found it difficult but I suppose you're more in the market you've always been a market trader you've always known you're more in touch with the market on both sides of it didn't really surprise you I suppose no not in the slightest I mean we're a seller of reinsurance as well so you know obviously we're constructing one story on on the right hand side and we're buying it on the left so we guessed that it was going to be difficult because we were not selling the product cheap either but you know we've faced difficult markets before we've navigated those I mean there's always an outcome that you can live with so yes you have to pay up for your reinsurance But if your original insurance clients are also ready to pay up too, you can keep your margins. The key is that John seems confident that reinsurance will be there to be bought and so won't constrain his own business. If one of the most connected people in reinsurance is confident, then that's something the rest of us should find encouraging. But what of differentiation? The complaint as the market reset last year was that everyone got tarred with the same brush. Now things are a little calmer. Seedents want reinsurers to take time to appreciate their individual merits a little more. Here's Vincent Tizio, President and CEO of Axis, expressing his wishes and wants as a buyer of reinsurance. On the insurance side as a buyer, I'd like our risk profile to be understood capably. Why? I believe that we're a very good risk profile on the insurance side. I understand that it's self-serving. And um, I think that we're bringing a disciplined set of results on our, in our insurance business and that we ought not be cast with the same brush across the market. And so that would be my hope and my expectation. Vince, speaking for reinsurance buyers everywhere, when he asks for his portfolio to be judged and reinsured on its merits, let's ask brokers what they want to get done now that the market is in a slightly calmer space. There's quite a lot on their plates. Here's Hannah Watkins at BMS. It's our job as brokers is to delve deeper into our clients' data, differentiate why their book is different to their peers, differentiate into where their exposures are, make those unknowns known so the pricing is more accurate for our clients' risk. For me, this is where we earn our worth, right, as brokers. We should absolutely be out there trying to find solutions for our clients if they're there. Everybody's, not said, had an easy time, but it's almost rolled over every year. There hasn't had to be the need for innovation. There hasn't had to be the need for delving deeper or or looking at where are we going with this book? Where can we find alternative solutions? And that's the exciting bit for us. And there seems to be more of that this year. And I suppose given the necessities, the mother of invention is saying, you're going to get better access. You're going to get better information than you've had before because it has to be there in order to differentiate that client to explain, look, don't tar us all with quite the same brush. Yeah. Whereas when it was a softer market, it didn't matter so much because you could get good terms for everybody. Yeah, and, and we don't forget that ultimately what we deliver in the reinsurance market, as you said, Mark, has a knock-on impact in the insurance market and ultimately the insureds. And that's fundamental. We're talking about governments, we're talking about businesses, and we're talking about people. 
Hard markets are where the best brokers always earn their spurs. As Mike Patworth said earlier, FAC is one of the things brokers have always traditionally led. But what else are brokers looking at? David Flandro's Howden Tiger launched a report at the event looking at the capital light structures that brokers are looking to utilise to unlock capacity wherever it may be found. Here's David to explain. So U.S. personal lines is in a particularly difficult spot at the moment. This is evidenced by what's been happening in California. But again, I would say one of the solutions for that is asset light structures. It's MGAs. And if you talk to some of the more creative MGAs, for example, those writing California wildfire, we are deploying capacity into that market through these new structures where it's not available through traditional insurers. This is where you're seeing most opportunity. It's easing some of these pain points in the best possible ways that you can in a really focused ways. That's our job. We have to be creative and create these structures for our clients so that we can deploy the capacity through our investment bank and through the ILS market and through traditional reinsurance to the people who need it. So broker creativity is going to be better rewarded this renewal. But what's top of Laura Mary's wish list for this renewal is even more fundamental. One of the biggest things that I think hopefully we can all agree on is last year, the month of December was very chaotic and nobody wants to go through that again. We ended up with really significant numbers of non-concurrencies, most concerningly on coverage issues. And that's something that we're going to be really focused on trying to smooth out and to correct when we go through January 1 this year getting those contracts back on a single basis so that you have one set of contract language that's dictating the coverage. Getting the patchwork quilt of coverages all cut from the same cloth is an incredibly worthwhile goal. But getting everyone to agree on specific definitions is always hard. So we wish Lara and many conscientious brokers like her good fortune in their mission at 1-1. Now it's time to talk about one of the big discussion points at the rendezvous this year. Casualty. You'll remember James Vickers mentioned it in his opening statement. While reinsurers can all say they're reasonably happy, or at least much happier, with where they have ended up on their property portfolios, casualty is far more a mixed bag. And of course, while property takes up more column inches, history shows that casualty is often the slower and more deadly killer. Conditions have not been great. We've had high inflation, some deterioration on back years, and increased US court awards. So after resetting property last time out, were reinsurers now looking to tweak casualty? It's time to talk to Simon Bird, Group Executive Underwriter and Active Underwriter Syndicate 2988 at Brit Insurance, to set the scene. What about the casualty world? Property, there's a almost universal consensus that rate adequacy is there or thereabouts, or there are varying degrees of happiness. They seem to be contrasting with varying degrees of unhappiness in casualty and US casualty treaties, should we say. No, that's very fair. I mean, the sort of casualty quota share was rediscovered in the last few years because the primary casualty insurance market got religion and put its house in order. And you saw in all the fundamental lines of business, re-underwriting, line size compression, improved deductibles, just good textbook stuff and a firm to hard market across many lines of business, be that GL or professional and financial lines. Now, if you look at where we are, there is a, a, call it an easing in the primary pricing, which means that there's going to be pressure on seeding commissions from the reinsurers because they want to see some compensation for the underlying easing. We've seen significant reserve deterioration on, on older years, particularly in the GL space. And that sort of period, I don't know, sort of 20. 
2016 to 2020, choose your years, but roughly that sort of period. Lots of prior development, not just in London, but all over the world. And that's a combination of a number of factors. One, an underappreciation of the risk itself and an underpricing of the original business. Coming out of COVID, courts reopen. Suddenly, of course, settlements going through and so forth. And juries, shall we say, on steroids, it might be almost, because the severity of awards has been way in excess of any form of social inflation or natural inflation. And for that reason, yes, casualty has been in, on paper in a good place. But if you've written a casualty quota share in 2020, you're still keeping it at the book to loss ratio. You're not taking down the loss ratio pit by meaningful amounts because three years on, I mean, you're barely 20% earned, if you like, in sort of real outcome terms. So, yes, there's a huge amount of uncertainties and you've got a price for that uncertainty yeah, today. So, so you have a hopeful tailwind in that you're sitting on a well-priced book, but you have an absolute headwind in terms of, are my back years sufficiently reserved? A great scene setter from Simon. GL is, of course, the abbreviation for general liability, and it will be used a few more times in this segment. So, some original softening, bad back years, scary jury awards. There's a lot to keep a warrior up at night. Let's check in briefly on what Vincent Tizio of Axis has got to say. As a seller, you do expect to be able to be pushing successfully for more rate if you think it's still needed? We believe generally that rate is needed. Mark, when you look across the portfolio at our specialist offerings, we believe there is a continued need. I would just highlight a couple of just to to give you some perspective. The first certainly is in the casualty business and with an emphasis on North American casualty. There's no doubt there's uncertainty surrounding the class, whether it be emanating from social inflation, economic uncertainty, or certainly the start point loss ratios. I think that our industry on the reinsurance casualty side recognizes that we need to continue to price our business more fairly in order to derive an adequate return. That's a clear message. Pricing more fairly sounds like a win for reinsurers. So a slightly firmer stance is to be expected. Now let's check in with Charlie Goldie, someone very well qualified to have a view, as you'll discover. Casualty seems to be more of a mixed bag. Is that also your view? It is. I always subscribe to the idea that you don't know casualty. And I I come from a casualty actuarial pricing background is how I started my career. And you never really know where casualty is until about four or five years after you've written the business. And so I can look and I can say, Gee, 2023 is better than 2022. 22 was better than 21. 21 was better than 20. I can keep saying that probably all the way back to 2018. I don't know whether 2023 is actually good. I know that 2018 was bad, but I don't know whether all that activity since has made 23 good. And I think casualty realistically needs to keep correcting. We're going to see inflation. Inflation has, it was a supply chain inflation, so it really limited itself to the property lines. Now it's become a wage inflation. It's making its way into the general economy. It's going to become a casualty. It's going to be part of the awards. Added on to social inflation, added on to everything. I think casualty casualty underwriters would be making a mistake if they stopped pushing until you could actually look and legitimately say, yes, that year was outstanding. There really is no substitute for material statistical uncertainty, is there? What about the view from one of the market's key policemen, Patrick Tiernan? If we separate casualty into USGL and uh, and maybe 
FinPro. So on USGL, jury's still out. I mean, I think it doesn't feel to me that um, we've got our arms around the impact going forward of the bleeding from 2014 to 2018 that we're seeing coming through. I think we do need to take corrective action on casualty, but doing it in partnership with an understanding of what we're dealing with feels like a better way to go. Um DNO, let's call it FinPro more generally, but DNO probably in particular, it's hard to take proportionate steps to irrational and unintelligent behavior. So we may need to be a bit more decisive slash prescriptive in how we deal with that. With DNO, obviously, it was very hard baked. If you triple the price of something, maybe you can have a realization that you did overcook it. But you can't overcook something that can't overcook lamb shank in the first 10 minutes of cooking. So, <laughs> so, so, so uh, we, if, if we look back to previous years, it's not the year one reserve after 24 months that tells you the story. It's the reserve after three years, four years, seven years. To suggest you've got rate adequacy on a long tail book after 24 months is completely irrational. I do like a good cooking analogy. On this showing, I think it would be a brave sedent going out into the market aggressively looking for improved casualty terms, particularly if their own Inwards book has been giving out rate in the last 12 months. They may find reinsurers' reactions hard to digest, particularly if they are to be found in Lloyd's. Mapfrey doesn't play in the US casualty space, but here's Eduardo Perithilema with an interesting general non-US view. From outside, um, we still see there's a very challenged market. And uh, in the short term, we with inflation, traditional inflation plus social inflation going on, it's probably going to be tough. And, and actually, when, when we look at it as, as buyers, we have a very close eye on the balance sheets of casualty underwriters because our historical perception is very rarely we saw solvency issues of reinsurance because of property cut. We always saw, saw it on the back of uh, casualty losses. And uh, there is where we need to be careful on that the market doesn't evolve in, in an unwanted direction. So Eduardo worries about the balance sheet quality of the sellers. And I'd say he's right. So if buyers are cautious and so are sellers, it looks like relative stability might be the order of the day. But of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If you'd had to pay for the bad years and were still paying... Your view would be different from a reinsurer who only came in when the market started hardening from 2018 onwards. And plenty of reinsurers also did smart legacy deals to offload their back years from that time onwards. Maybe some of them are feeling more bullish. Here's the view from a more recent market entrant, Alex Maloney of Lancashire. I mean, we do write some casualty now, uh, not a huge amount, but we do write some casualty now. And obviously, we were attracted to the casualty world when it was very difficult a couple of years ago. So we're pleased with when we came in, the book we built, the team we have. But we all know there's bad casualty years out there, which thankfully we don't have. They still need to be addressed. Inflation clearly is a factor. So I think there's still issues for the market to address going forward that may be masked by a benign wind season, who knows? Well, luckily, you came in at the right time. You didn't have yeah. to be stumping up reserves. But I suppose that none of those reinsurers are going to take their eye off the ball at any moment because they've had to stump up more of yeah, their reserves. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm just convinced that reserving must be inadequate for some of those really difficult casualty years and companies will find a way to manage that over time. But I don't think that problem is not there. I definitely think there's an issue on back years and that has to be paid for, doesn't it? In the end, losses have to be funded. And we know that reinsurers aren't in the mood for that anymore. So why would they do this in casualty at 1124 when they have so many other opportunities to make healthy returns? Let's leave John Paul Conocente with the last word from sellers. 
I think the big question from our perspective is the loss cost. You get decent price increases, but the key question is the price increase you're getting either higher or lower than the loss cost. And I think uh, looking backwards at the loss costs is not necessarily a good reflection of what to expect future. Social inflation is increasing very rapidly. Funds that are providing litigation funding are promising investors returns of 25% or more. And that's being paid by the insurance industry. So I think our concern is I think the insurance underwriters are doing everything they can to write the best portfolio possible. To me, the issue is more the tort environment. And today, there's no tort reform in sight. There's no reining in of uh, social inflation. And that creates a concern. I think from a reinsurer's point of view, it increases the volatility significantly. And therefore, we need adequate margin to be able to absorb the volatility. And I don't think reinsurers are getting sufficient margin today. So it's not really giving you an appetite? No, our appetite for U.S. casualty uh, remains very limited. You know, we, we like the portfolio that we have. We think over the midterm to long term, the clients we support will be good clients. But as a segment, we remain very cautious. If this is a bluff, it's an incredibly convincing one. Let's hear from a broker, Hannah Watkins. Casualty seems to be more of a mixed bag. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when people were pulling back from property last year and they wanted to diversify their book and diversify their book by going into casualty. I mean, who'd have thought it? And, you know, I think last year as well, for once, those in that sector were slightly relieved that someone else was delivering worse news than them. So I think social inflation is still a problem. Reserves is still a problem. So We've had a bit of deterioration in some of those softer market years, haven't we? Yeah, and I think that it's still to play out, for sure. So the news is not good, and the story is going to play out. We'll let David Flander finish this one with his trademark astute analysis and skill for summarizing complicated scenarios. If you want to talk about casualty right now, there is some segmentation that's pretty apparent if you look at casualty primary and casualty excess of loss, for example. Primary casualty, particularly some of the lines that went up a lot previously, are starting to moderate, where casualty excess of loss, although it renews less frequently, hasn't done. Right, So there's a bifurcation between insurance and reinsurance in some areas of, I would say, liability, which is interesting and becoming increasingly apparent. It's part of the heightened cost of capital that casualty riders have to think about. Alongside that, you get a higher discount rate and a higher running yield. So there, it's an equation you have to solve, right? And it looks like the reinsurers are solving it slightly differently right now than the primaries. So it looks like casualty will be a flashpoint, where differing views between primary insurers and their reinsurers are going to be exposed. If you're bullish on the primary side and are expecting your reinsurers to be equally as excited as you, you may be disappointed. Now, you can't come down to Monte Carlo without talking about capital and investor appetite. Core investors are still more or less playing a waiting game and more casual ones still aren't thinking about insurance, or when they do, they still worry. Only really well-established, top-decile players have capital available to them, but plenty of these aren't actually seeking any more. As often happens, while we're at the rendezvous, a couple of news stories broke about some senior teams looking to capital raise and start up into the market. Both were fronted by hyper-credible executives with multi-decade experience and major long-term successes behind them. One, Given how many of the startup stories of the past three years have failed to launch, how likely were new startups to get off the ground? And two, if they and others were able to do so, would their capacity be easily absorbed? Or might it affect competition or market stability in any way? 
Here's a typical response from Hannah Watkins, who as a broker should really have every incentive to be talking up the prospect of new competitive capacity coming in. You'll have seen in the press, we've heard rumblings in Bermuda, but it, it's not tangible. There's we no don't know actually what, that, what yeah. that means. But people are definitely waiting in the wings to see what's happening. Does that mean this year or next year? Wait and see. So it's a wait and see. How about Jim Williamson and then Richard Brindle? both part of businesses that have successfully raised capital and been very closely in touch with the capital markets of late. Many potential startups discussed, none have come to fruition yet in any meaningful way. A number have died on the vine, and I think that's indicative of the fact that third-party capital is still on hold. All I would say to you, and I speak to investors and bankers and rating agencies all the time, and it seems to me that trifecta are the people you speak to to find out if there's any money getting raised, and it's a big fat no. Are you starting to get the picture? Yes, you might say they would say that, wouldn't they? But then why would they say that to me with a microphone in my hand if they thought they might end up quickly looking foolish? What about someone close to the ILS world? Cat bonds have been having a good year. So what does Kathleen Reardon see? We are mid-hurricane season. Nobody is uh, taking their money to the bank. What investors are looking for? Some are sitting on the sidelines because they were part of that multi-year height and loss activity. They had to readjust their alternative portfolios because of their bond portfolio, etc. They needed some liquidity. So I would say, very importantly, we are not the only game in town. There's competition for investors' attention, right? There are other sectors that perhaps are more liquid, more transparent. That is on us to make sure the investors are brought along on the journey, explaining our market cycles, why this is a good time to invest. And for every person that's on the sidelines waiting for a clean year, seeing that the rate momentum continues well into 2024, there's another investor that's a bit more opportunistic. Maybe they didn't go through the heavy loss period. So we're talking to investors across the spectrum. Well, that's a little more encouraging. We're not the only game in town, but at least we're seen as a game by some with more bullish animal spirits. But could we easily accommodate this new capacity if it could be conjured up? John Kavanagh thinks so. New capacity coming in is a sign of the quality of the market. So if we're, we're seeing an inflow of new players, I think that's good for the market, as long as it's sensible and of a scale where it's not going to disrupt the flow of the market. You know, I think a couple of billion coming in will just make no impact at all on the market trends. But it will be good to see because I think we're all keen on seeing new players come in. Won't be destabilising. Well, I can't see that it can be on that scale. That's an interesting thought. The scale of the startups will reflect the quality of the market. On the showing so far, it seems that no one can quite decide whether this is a great market or not. Lara Mowry also thinks that any new capacity can be deployed without upsetting the apple cart. New capacity, and can we do that without destabilising the market, perhaps without diluting? Oh, I think we can. It's a matter of what does the underwriting environment look like going forward? We have a growing marketplace, and there's still plenty of things in the insurance and reinsurance sectors that aren't necessarily being fully serviced by the industry. There certainly is plenty of risk in the system for people who want to think about what is it that sedents really need and how do we design and tailor product that ends up satisfying both investors because if you don't satisfy investors you don't end up having capacity at the end of the day but it also actually delivers a product that does what a sedent 
needs it to do in order to say this is worth buying. Very considered words from Lara there. After all, this is a trade that shouldn't be a zero-sum game, where one side has to lose in order for the other to win. Although it may often seem that way when the market is out of balance. So, is it out of balance? Probably a little, according to many. Here's an enjoyable exchange with Paul Brand. Surely, as a relatively new business, Convex would have to be doing some of the leaning in I mentioned at the beginning. So what's your appetite? I mean, you've got this great nimble structure. You've got ready access to capital. Presumably, this is a great market for you and you're leaning into it and you're growing into it. Yeah, we're growing into it, but with restraint because at the end of the day, we've got a reasonably strong appetite for catastrophe risks and volatility, but it's not unbounded. And it's not really driven by essentially by how much premium we get. It's really by driven by how much capital we've got. Because any year could be much, much worse than uh, you might have expected. And so we're, we're much more in the, we like the business, we think if we apply sensible, uh, thoughtful underwriting to it, yeah, which is largely driven around selecting clients, thinking about client strategies that will last through a longer period of time, and how, if we're providing them with capacity on their property catastrophe business, what access does that give us to other parts of the portfolio so we can start to get a bit more balance? But really, we, we will be constrained at the end of the day by the cat appetite. And that's not influenced that much by premium. But you've got a slightly increased appetite. If everyone's slightly increased their appetite with this damp in the market, with this damp in pricing and terms of growth. I, I, I think it's quite interesting. People talk about the insurance gap, don't they? And I think there's... Do people want to buy more catastrophe risk as there are more catastrophes? I think the answer is yes. So I think that actually demand is increasing probably faster than suppliers still. So it's a yes, but in a really measured way that is still constrained by how much cat risk can be assumed without unbalancing the portfolio. This is still not necessarily what buyers want to hear. Here's a similar message from Scott Egan, CEO of Sirius Point, which has also been growing significantly in insurance. At Sirius Point, we are ready to deploy capital in the right way, but we will remain disciplined. Just because we've got capital, I promise you, it's not burning a hole in my pocket. Here's a good summing up from Willie Jabshe. Yes, there have been mention of potential startups. I don't think it's going to be easy for them to, number one, raise the capital, number two, come in and disrupt what's happening. So Presumably they would say that they're not here to disrupt, they're just here to add. That's what any new entrant usually says, right? But I think it's going to be difficult for them. I really do. And I heard somebody say this earlier. It's actually quite interesting. This isn't a truly hard market. Because in a hard market, you see influx of capital come in. There's so much shortage of capacity that you see that influx of capital come in. There is no shortage of capacity in the market. Capacity is there. There's enough capacity it's there. A There's enough of, capital. Of, uh, naive capacity. It's a, it's a shortage of yeah naivety. You know, it's an abundance of discipline at the moment. An abundance of discipline. That either sounds like a discarded title for a new Bond movie, or a good place to end. So it's a market where reinsurers are looking to grow in a measured way, but without giving up any of their recent hard-won gains. And it's still a place where fear on both sides is the dominant emotion over greed. If we have a big loss between now and the end of the year, there's a real risk of fragile confidence evaporating and real disorder returning. It's also a market where buyers want to buy more good quality reinsurance from sustainable long-term partners. This has to point to a firmish market at 1-1. The key for me is the brokers. For the second year in a row, there's been a complete absence of bluster. 
or bravado on price and conditions, and instead a down-to-earth focus on getting the things that need to be done, done. The startups are a bit of a sideshow, if an entertaining one. But absent shocks, this is a market where, as long as buyers come along accepting that they have to pay up, they won't be left constrained. To paraphrase the Rolling Stones, they may not get what they want, but they'll probably get what they need. Paul Brand said something to me that I wasn't able to use in this programme. He said that this was a market where reinsurers had simultaneously annoyed their investors and their customers. Investors are still biding their time, and some are licking their old wounds. Meanwhile, most customers have got over the shock of last year and will be planning on passing on the new cost of reinsurance to their ultimate customers. After all, climate change's effects on property on the one hand and social inflation's effects on casualty have to be paid for. But if I were a mainstream journalist and not a specialist insurance one and I'd been sent to cover this conference, my headline takeaway from Monte Carlo might look to puncture this consensus. Senior reinsurers and insurers gather together on the Côte d'Azur to drink champagne and make the man in the street pay for it. But that's a problem for another day. I wish you an orderly and stress-free renewal. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs> <laughs>